Today's reading will be in Luke chapter 22, starting in 54, if you want to turn there and stand for the reading of God's word. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and said, and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, it is good to worship with you uh, this Sunday evening. Um, If you uh, do not have a copy of uh, the Bible in front of you uh, in some way, shape, or form, I highly encourage you to have that with you tonight. You will be greatly edified by the ability to see the text because we will be going all throughout the text of Luke's gospel, and a little bit into the Old Testament today to trace a theme which is now introduced to us and has been laid before us in a kind of climactic scene in the gospel of Luke. It it might be the case that you read the denial of Jesus, uh, where where Peter uh, makes this classical uh, blunder, and, and he, uh, if you, if, even if you've only read the Gospels one time uh, or you're vaguely familiar with the story of Jesus, one of the things you, you are very familiar with often, even within that story, is that Peter, his right-hand man, denies him, just as Judas, one of his close disciples, betrays him. And so these are common motifs in the betrayal and arrest and trial of Jesus. And I think it's important that we see these events in light of their biblical narrative in the Gospel of Luke, and that we don't just pull them out and do a deep dive biography, say, of Peter and his, his psycho state as he's denying Jesus, although we will take a look at the, let's say, internal life of Peter as he here goes through the denial process. Um, but this denial and the subsequent uh, beating of Jesus by the soldiers are linked together. It's not as though, for instance, uh, in Luke chapter Uh, 22 verse 53, Luke starts an idea, then he parenthetically pauses, and from verse 54 to verse 62, he tells you what's going on in Peter's life, and then he goes back to what's happening with Jesus. This is all part of Luke's narrative, and he's, he's making the same point, really from this moment up until the crucifixion of Jesus, and that point is simply this, that everything that Jesus spoke about himself is coming true. Everything Jesus says, everything Jesus predicted, everything Jesus taught hangs 
on the validity and the trustworthiness of himself. And what Luke is careful to show us, and what we should be careful to observe, is that everything that Jesus said is, in fact, trustworthy. Everything Jesus predicted is coming to pass. And we should see Peter's denial, not as a parenthetical statement about what's going on in Peter's life, and then a return to what's going on with Jesus' crucifixion, but rather Peter's denial affirms things that Jesus has said would take place. So we're going to take a look at that. Um, the point of, of this text is to show you, and I, I've titled our, our study tonight, Affirmation and Denial, because what Peter's denial does is it affirms the identity of Jesus. Just as the soldiers mocking Jesus, denying his ability to prophesy, also affirms the identity of Jesus. And as we will discuss next week uh, in the three different trial scenes before us, that those two, in the denial of the Sanhedrin, the denial of Pilate, the denial of Herod, all of those things affirm the identity of Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to show us in these verses. So these are not disconnected, uh, flashing scenes that are un, un, uh, unconnected to one another, just like a bunch of loose Legos, but they're actually a, a structure built together to tell us one cohesive story that Jesus is the person who he said he is. It's affirming his identity. So uh, these verses start, they start by picking up with where we left off last week. Remember last week, Jesus has said to the crowd that has come to him in verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is essentially saying, you're being cowards and mischievous by doing this at night under the cover of dark where there's no, there's no public uh, honesty to what you're doing. So you're doing this under the cover of night, but that's fine. This is your hour. This is your moment. And so what do they respond in verse 54? They seize him and they lead him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And then the, the note from Luke and Peter is following at a distance. So here sets the scene for the first thing that we're taking a look at, which is that what Jesus said uh, to the, the crowd that's arresting him is true. They don't, they don't arrest him on charges of being a, a rebel and then immediately take him to the Roman authorities, what do they do? They, are, they, they are arrest him, and then they take him to the high priest's house because what they want to do is they want to get their story straight. They want to get this trial straightened out so that when they go before Rome and try to get Rome to kill Jesus, they have all of the witnesses, all of the testimony that they need. This would be an atypical way to do a trial. You wouldn't be doing it at night. You wouldn't be doing it under the cover of dark. And certainly, if you wanted Roman execution to be involved as an outcome, you wouldn't start your trial off this way. Now, for those of you familiar with the legal system in the United States, it's actually, uh, we, what our legal system attempts to do is it attempts to do fair justice to both the accused and those who are uh, defendants. So the, the people who are defending themselves and for the people seeking justice, it's trying to do a game of equal weights and measures to make sure justice is done. Now, it doesn't always accomplish that, obviously. There's many stories of our justice system not accomplishing that. But there are some tenets that are, we would say, obvious maybe to those of us who's grown up under a justice system that at least seeks to do justice. Uh, things like 
due process and things like uh, innocent until proven guilty, these kinds of things that we are familiar with from, from living in, in the United States. Uh, those are things that also are, are biblical values of justice as well. So that you don't, you don't just uh, stack up the evidence against someone and then try to swiftly get them executed. But you see, that's exactly what the religious leaders of the Jewish system are doing. They've, they've brought their own army together. They've seized Jesus. And now they're going to essentially try him uh, themselves. So they're going to be both judge, jury, and executioner of this whole thing. And then when they, when they complete that, although they, they don't have the power to kill him, so they're going to have to take him to Rome and say to him, here we have a verdict. Would you be our arm of justice? That, that would be a little bit like uh, if you were... Uh, if you were accused by someone of something, let's say someone uh, doesn't like you, they have, they have it out against you, they, they, they're not a fan of you, they accuse you of something. They accuse you, let's say, of uh, driving while intoxicated, right? And, and they don't have evidence of this. They don't have any, anything aside from they were at a bar that you were at, and when you left, they saw you leave, and they know that you got home somehow. And so they go to the police, and they say, this person was driving while intoxicated, and the police say, well, we should arrest them and we'll just throw them in jail. No trial, nothing like that. So this person has, has devised a plan. They've sought it to execute the plan. And then they want the police to be essentially their arm of, of justice. It's a little bit like what the Jewish people are doing here. They're, they've come up with a plan themselves to betray Jesus. They are going through their own trial process. They're about to start it. And then when that trial process is completed, they're going to seek Roman input to... Uh, be their arm of justice. It's, it's a totally backwards system of doing justice. But the point is that this whole thing, as Luke's showing it to us, is not a just trial. This whole thing is screaming injustice all the way through. And so uh, he wants you to seize that. They seize him. They lead him away. They're doing this all under the cover of night. And Peter is following from a distance. Okay? So that sets us the scene where uh, Peter finds himself in this courtyard where he's going to be asked three different times by three different people at three different uh, intervals about whether he is or is not associated with Jesus or whether he is or is not a follower of or a believer in the innocence of, of Jesus. And that's that whole first section. And like I said, we have to see this in light of what Jesus has spoken and in light of what Luke is kind of bringing to a, a head. So if you would, briefly, uh, let's look at the Old Testament expectation for what Luke is completing here. And this, all, this is not going to make sense when we go through it at first, but as we build the text together, it'll start to make sense. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Uh, There is an Old Testament expectation for a future and final coming prophet. And you see it uh, as as Moses here lays out the law. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Then the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will myself will require it of him. Meaning, uh, if you don't listen to the prophet, it's as though you don't listen to God himself. Okay? So there's Old Testament expectation. Moses is this prophet, the first type of this prophet. And he says, kind of at the end of his life, God will once again send to you a prophet, who will raise up a prophet who's like me, and this prophet, like me, you are supposed to listen to that prophet. Okay? So there's this Old Testament expectation. This expectation is echoed a little bit in Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Jeremiah, where they reflect on the, this future deliverer, this messianic prophet king who's going to come to deliver the people. But we've been looking at Isaiah quite a bit as we've been going through these last chapters of Luke. So if you would, we're going to just look at what Luke wants you to know about this prophet. And what Luke wants to show you is that Jesus is this prophet. So turn to the Gospel of Luke, but not back to where we just were. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 3 of the Gospel. And I just want to show you how this argument in Luke's gospel builds and builds and builds to try to show you that Jesus is this future prophet to deliver the people whom we should listen to. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. So Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And at the moment of Jesus' baptism... Here is what happens as Luke records it. Verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven spoke, You are my beloved Son, with, who, with you I am well pleased. So here comes Jesus at the inauguration of his ministry, and he's baptized, and at his baptism, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and the, a voice from heaven says, Here is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? One chapter later, Luke chapter uh, 4, verse 18, Jesus is reflecting on that baptism. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now this is one of those Isaiah texts that's talking about that messianic prophet king who's going to make the peace of God known upon the world. And Luke is saying, recording this about Jesus, saying, Hey, Jesus' baptism, remember that? Jesus says at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him so that he could be this messianic figure, this one who's going to deliver his people. And so he's just kind of laying this foundation. And the culmination of that is found in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the messianic king comes to pronounce God's favor, to proclaim this jubilee freedom for the people. Well, uh, there's a couple of ways this gets developed, but turn to chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke. In verse 20, where John the Baptist, who's the one who baptized Jesus in chapter 3, who, who witnessed the voice you know, from heaven, all those things, uh, John the Baptist is imprisoned, and in verse 20 of chapter 7, and when men come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Why? Saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist, who was present at Jesus' baptism, he's 
got a little bit of doubt going on because now he who's proclaimed this jubilee of the Lord is himself sitting in prison for the message that he proclaimed about Jesus, right? That Jesus is the one who was coming. And so he sends his messengers and says, are you the one who is to come? So even John expressing some uh, skepticism, some doubt possibly. And what Jesus does is he, he does all the things associated with that messianic figure. And so uh, verse 21 of, of this same text, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. That's one of the things prophesied in that Isaiah text. And he answered them, verse 22, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. So John expresses doubt. Jesus confirms that he is, in fact, this one, this one who is coming. There's no one else to look for, okay? Deuteronomy 18, that one who's coming, John says it's Jesus. John doubts that it's Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 you were right. It is, in fact, me. I am the one who is coming. Okay. So Jesus is this prophet. Okay. Now turn to chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. And it's very important uh, to me, by the way, that, that you see these with your own eyes because this is a theme that has been developing in the gospel of Luke, which is coming to a head in our text. So all of this is going to crescendo where we are in the, in the Bible or in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This is Jesus' first prediction of his own death, what we are currently reading about in chapter 22. And in verse 22 of chapter 9, he charges them saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here Jesus prophesies about his own arrest, his rejection, and on the third day, his resurrection, okay? Now, what John told you in Jesus' betrayal, who's present at the betrayal of Jesus when, when he's being betrayed by Judas? Well, you have the Jewish guards present. You have the elders and the chief priests. They're all, they're all there present as Jesus is being rejected. So here's Jesus' first prediction of his own death, okay? He's prophesied it. Now look at verse 44 of chapter 9, which might be just like a page away for you. He's prophesying his death a second time. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So he says, just just we're all on the same page. The son of man will be delivered into the hands of men. Okay. The third one of those texts is we'll we'll look at in a a little bit. Uh, It's it's one we, we looked at last week, chapter 18, prophesying the same kind of thing in a little bit more detail. We'll get there. I'm going chronologically right now through Luke's gospel. So uh, go to chapter 13, verse 35. Uh, Here Jesus is speaking about Jerusalem, the city, the city which he loves, the city who he is sent to redeem. And here's what he says about the city of Jerusalem. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's Jesus. He's not yet entered Jerusalem, as we will see in the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Luke. And he's saying, Jerusalem is left desolate, and you won't see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So hearken to the triumphal entry. Jesus is prophesying about both the destruction of Jerusalem and 
that they're going to receive him as a king when he comes in entry. Okay, you see the, both these things. He's, he's, he's this prophet who speaks about himself and what he's going to accomplish in the future, just as he prophesies his own death. Now, chapter 17 of the Gospel of Luke, and verse 34. And by the way, these uh, references start getting closer and closer to one another as we, as we go. Chapter 17 and verse 34, uh, he's, he's speaking prophetically again. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Similar kind of prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Here's the second time he does it. And then in chapter 20, uh, verse 9, you have a similar kind of thing going on. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 9, uh, really through the end of that parable, verse 18, what does he say? He says, Israel, they're like these tenant farmers who were charged with this vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard sent to them others to come and plead with them to repent. And what happens when, he, when, when the owner of the vineyard sends his son, what will they do to the son? They will take him. They will say, this is our moment. This is our chance. And they will kill him. That's found uh, in verse uh, 15. And they threw him, the son, out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here's the, here's the question, right? So in parable form, Jesus is saying, hey, hint, hint, here's what's going to happen to me, the, the son of the parable, Okay. Chapter 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, this is uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples, how it was adorned with noble stones. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's the third time he talks about the destruction of the temple prophetically in the future, about a judgment coming. Okay? The, the point of all these prophecies that I'm showing you is that Luke is... The prophet, like Moses, who's coming after Moses, the final prophet who we should listen to. And Luke is showing us all these instances of Jesus prophesying about things to come in the future. He says, I am the one to come. He tells John the Baptist this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim the Lord's favor. Here's all these predictions that Jesus says. He will be killed. He will be betrayed. He will be the son of man who is betrayed. He predicts it multiple times. He says the temple will be destroyed because he's the one true temple. He's got all these future predictions, okay? Jesus is a prophet, but a prophet unlike any of the other prophets of the Old Testament. He's this final prophet, okay? Now, I've saved for you uh, one example uh, that is actually a direct quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you'll have to turn actually backwards there uh, because when I was looking at my notes, I didn't see it, but you have to see this. So uh, this is in chapter 9, verse 35. It's It's a direct quotation from that Deuteronomy text. This is Jesus on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, as it's often called, where he's with Moses and Elijah, the two major prophetic figures from the Old Testament. And uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, the voice from the cloud. Remember Luke chapter 3, this is God. Voice from the cloud saying, this is my son, like it says the first time, my chosen one, that's different, listen to him. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 18? 
uh, Jesus is the prophet, uh, or there's this prophet coming, and you're supposed to listen to this prophet? Well, Luke chapter 9, verse 35, uh, the direct quotation is, here is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So this is the cloud speaking, saying, by the way, this is the prophet, the one you should listen to, listen to him. Okay? Okay. Now, we were, we were almost to our text, so let's go, go back there. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 20, uh, or Luke chapter 18, sorry. This is the final time Jesus foretells of his death. Uh, it's Luke chapter 18, verse 31. I'll not read all of it, but I'll pick up in verse 32 of Luke chapter 18. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Well, that should bring to your ear what we read in our text uh, for tonight, Luke 22, where the Gentiles are around Jesus, the, the Roman guards, mocking him and beating him. And Jesus said, hey, by the way, this is going to happen. Right? And as readers, who are careful readers of Luke's gospel, we should be noting all of these things. Okay, so that takes us to the text of Luke 22. So we're back in chapter 22, but not yet to the text we were at tonight. Because there's uh, two more things that Jesus predicts that are prophetic predictions. First one is when Jesus, uh, in verse 21, speaking about Judas, who's to betray him, and he says... But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So before Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus, Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. And as other gospels tell us, Jesus kind of zones that in, knowing that it's Judas who's going to do it. And then another final prediction, and then we'll get back to the text for tonight. Verse 31 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Here Jesus says, Peter, this is what's going to happen. Just like Jesus says, hey, I'm the one who's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Just like he says, hey, I am the one who is to come. Just like he says, hey, I'm going to be betrayed and given over and beaten and rejected. All of these things Jesus predicts as a prophet. And then here in Luke 22, Peter denies Jesus three times. You'll see that in the text. First, in verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. This is not a, a Roman centurion. This is not a Jewish high priest. Uh, this is not anyone with any legal testimonial authority. This is a servant girl. She has no ability to drag Peter into court and try him for this. And to a servant girl who has no power over him, what does Peter say? Verse 57, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Now that word that's translated woman, you're going to see that again uh, when, it, when he responds the second time, he says, man, I am not. And the third time he says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Those are all what we would call, uh, it's a, a Greek term, it means evocative, meaning 
He's, a, he's making a direct address. It's kind of like if you were talking to someone in English and you would say, listen close, and then whatever follows is, is, a, is an emphatic kind of statement. His denial is an emphatic kind of denial. He says, woman, I do not know him. He's addressing directly her. He says, if you get nothing else from our interaction, know this, I do not know him. And a little later, so that's the first denial, a little later, someone else saw him, doesn't tell us who, and says, you also are one of them, meaning you're associated with those 12 who were with Jesus. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Basically, what would a Galilean be doing here during this trial? Strange, we have two Galileans here. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So what Jesus said about Peter came true. Now, Peter, yes, does deny Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a, a few moments here. But the point of telling us that, Jesus uh, that Peter is denying Jesus is not necessarily so we can forget about what's happening with Jesus and feel bad for Peter. The point of this is to show that Jesus actually predicts things that actually come true. And as many commentators point out, uh, when he says certain things and you see them coming true, you should believe other things that he said that he also said were going to come true. So what, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, you're going to deny me three times. But what else does he say to Peter? He says, I've prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. And when you are restored, go and strengthen your brother. So he, he doesn't just tell Peter bad news. He also tells him good news. Similarly, when Jesus speaks about his death, those three times that we, we looked at just now, he, he, what does he say? The Son of Man will be betrayed, handed over, beaten, mocked, but on the third day he will rise again. So as the Son of Man is being betrayed, beaten, and mocked, as a reader, you should be going, oh, the first part's happening, the second part's happening, the third part's happening. Well, what else did he say was going to happen in this series of events? The resurrection, which he predicted, is also expected in his mocking and beating and being given over. So all of these things are proving the point. They're affirming for us that Jesus is this prophet, the one who is trustworthy to listen to. And I'll say, because Jesus is this prophet, we should listen to his words, which were given through his messengers, as though they were also binding on our lives today as well. So Jesus is the prophet, the one who God says, listen to him. And so, well, what else is there to do but to listen to him? Well, Luke tells us a whole lot of things that Jesus says. I just want to give you, recall one of them to your mind. You'd find this in chapter 9. You don't have to look there. Jesus says, if anyone was to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, what's the point of that? Well, the point of that is that Jesus says discipleship is self denial. And now in, in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel, not only does Jesus say that, but also he's the prophet who we have to listen to. So it's not like, well, I can take that as a man's opinion of, of my life. Like if you were, 
when you were a student picking majors in college and your parents give you advice and your guidance counselor gives you advice and your friends give you advice about what you should major in and what you should go into for your career, or when someone tells you, well, you should get this car and not that car, or when you're looking at the grocery store and someone tells you that's a better deal than that one. These are all relatively small things and very much opinionated things. Jesus' call to discipleship is none of those things. It's a de declaration of, of absolute, what we would say, binding truth, because he's the one whom we have to listen to. Uh, you don't have to listen to your friends. You don't have to listen to your parents. You don't have to listen to uh, the, the people who, who hang out with you. You don't have to listen even to me. But you do have to listen to Jesus and all that he commands us to obey. And so, here Jesus says in, in, in Luke's gospel, if anyone comes after me as a disciple of mine, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. You might be saying, that's a lot of Bible study and, and, and uh, looking at all these biblical texts. What's the point? Well, the point is, in a, in a culture, a culture that we live in that says, you should not deny yourself, you should affirm yourself. You should affirm the things that you feel and believe to be true, and other people should affirm those things about you as well. Jesus says actually something strikingly different. I give you a new identity, which is, which is mine to give, a new creation, which you now are, obedient, loving the Lord, willing to serve him, and you should deny that old self with all of its passions and desires, and you should actually affirm what I tell you is true and right and beautiful and lovely and good. So in a world that says, you listen to you, and if you've never heard that before, you just have not been listening because the world says that all over the place. Uh, Christians, well-meaning Christians say that to other Christians in well-meaning ways, but, but the Bible does not say, affirm yourself. It does not say, believe yourself. The Bible says, actually, you're created in the image of God, but you should be very suspicious of your own inclinations and desires because of the corruption of sin. And what Jesus does is he gives us a new spirit, a new heart, a new way, and new commands to instruct us and guide us to follow. So that we actually deny ourselves and we follow him. Which means that when we feel like a sin isn't so sinful because we don't feel bad about it, we should first ask the question, what does the text of scripture say about this thing? What does Jesus say about this? What do his disciples, what do his followers, the ones who he says, these are my people who carry my words say about this? That should be our guiding light, not necessarily what our friends, family, or we personally think or feel about that thing. Self-denial, not self-affirmation, is one of the messages of Scripture. So Jesus' prophecies so far in Luke's gospel have come true. And again, we should anticipate all of his prophecies to come true, including the one which will take us a couple of weeks to get to, the resurrection, which is to come. So uh, that whole thing that I just said about how he gives us a new spirit and a new body, all of that, uh, at least redemptively speaking, is still a couple weeks away, but that is part of the complete picture. So we just need to make sure that you have that piece as well. Okay? You cannot have actually the crucifixion without the, the resurrection. They're both kind of unified uh, in their message. So, okay, Jesus is this prophet who we should listen to. He's trustworthy. I said we were going to go to Peter, and uh, we will look at Peter now for just a moment. Um, what does Peter's failure teach us? Peter's denial of Jesus, what does it show to us? Well, I already told you one thing that it shows us. 
It shows us that we should hear Jesus when he tells us about things that are to come, how they are to happen, because he accurately predicts Peter down to the letter of his denials. But what Peter, uh, what Peter shows us is one of the dangers of, a, uh, of listening to Jesus only halfway. So look at the text in uh, verse 61 of Luke 22. This is after Jesus, Peter has just denied Jesus for the third time. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. What's the result? And he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly. Peter only remembers half of what Jesus told him. What's the other half of what Jesus told him? Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter predicts Jesus' downfall. Jesus predicts Peter's downfall. And he predicts Peter's restoration. So, So Peter should have listened the whole way to what Jesus said. The bitter weeping is not actually, by the way, a bad response. If Peter's remembering that he has sinned in the way Jesus told him that he was going to sin, that doesn't lessen the, the brunt of the sin which he's committed. But, but it does remind us that we should remember the full counsel of what Jesus has. For instance, if you have a particularly guilty conscience regarding sin, it's not bad to feel uh, that, you have, uh, that you have done grave wrong by sinning. But you should remember the full message of Scripture, which also says not only are you a sinner, but also that Christ offers forgiveness, redemption, a blank slate, and a new life to walk into. And that actually those former sins, that former life is not counted against you because of Christ's righteousness. You remember the full message, not just the parts that make you feel bad about yourself. The full message is in view, even as Peter is being spoken to by Jesus, And you, Christian, have a more complete message than Peter did. You have a more complete message than what he had. And Jesus says things like in 1 John, John's writing, and he says, uh, if we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. So so when we confess our sin, yes, we feel bad. We, We should feel bad for our sin. But the full picture of the message is Jesus is this forgiver of sin. It's the full message. And is it not a relief to know that there is mercy for sin. Do you know the kind of mercy that Jesus offers for sin? If you don't, you must know that mercy. Because one of the things that causes Peter to weep is when Jesus looks at him and he looks at Jesus and they they have this like eye contact moment and that causes uh, Peter to just kind of break down. Now, um, this would be like a little bit like if you, uh, let's say, spoke badly about someone behind their back, right? And then uh, the next day, you see that same person who you just spoke badly about the day before, and they look at you, they make eye contact with you, they warmly greet you, and they say, you're just such a wonderful friend. (laughs) This is a little bit like that moment where Peter, who's just finished denying Jesus, makes eye contact with Jesus, they see each other, And what is Jesus doing at the moment that Peter is denying him? Well, Luke is going to tell us in a a couple of verses what's going on while Peter is sitting around the campfire denying Jesus. What's Jesus doing? 
he's affirming everything Peter's denying. Uh, Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. I am the messianic king. I am the one who's going to go to the cross. And what else did Jesus say to Peter? But that my body is broken for you. My blood is spilt for you. And here he makes eye contact with Peter and his affections for Peter are not lessened by Peter's denial of him. Jesus is still going to go to the cross. He's still going to atone for the sins of Peter. And he's, and he's going to go through that suffering even whilst Peter is actively denying him. I want you to know, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, while you were in your sin, uh, Jesus still had his affection for you. Jesus still looked upon you with love and care. And back in Calvary when he died, as he was suffering under the wrath of God, he was looking forward to the joy of being in fellowship also with you, Christian even while you were actively in your sin. It is for the joy set before him that he endures the cross. And so it is with love that he goes to the cross, even for Peter, who has just finished denying him. Conclusion, you and I, too, should remember that in our sin, in our wickedness, in our denial of Jesus, it does not lessen his love for us. It does not lessen his determination to save Jesus is making the good confession, as Timothy tells us, in, or as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we should look to Jesus, the one who made the good confession before Pilate. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am this Savior. Okay. Now, that takes us to the, the last two verses, or three verses in the text, uh, which essentially echo everything I just said about the, the, uh, the this is with the Roman soldiers. Um, now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody... This is likely both Roman soldiers and Jewish temple guards. Um, they were holding Jesus in custody. They were mocking him as they beat him. And they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. What they do is they, they blind his eyes. They hit him and they say, we demand that you tell us who it was or else we don't believe that you're a prophet. Okay. Well, Jesus has said to his disciples and probably to other people listening, the Son of Man will be betrayed. He'll be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. He'll be rejected by all these people. He'll be mocked and beaten and, and scorned. So as they tell him that he must prophesy in a, uh, that, that they were, as they were beating him, who was it that beat him? What, what he is doing is he's saying, as he's living through that, him being the true prophet is being affirmed that whole time. That he is the true prophet, and as they beat him, that is being more and more affirmed. As they even ask him, which one of us struck you, prophesy. So their rejection of his prophetic status actually affirms his prophetic status. Now, the thing that we can, at least as modern readers, take away from, from that is there's this temptation and this danger that we have to create standards of evidence for what Jesus must do or must reveal in order for us to believe him that just go beyond what God himself gives to us in terms of standards of evidence for belief. For instance, it's, it's not all that uncommon if you're 
If you've ever looked in the world of skepticism, Christian skepticism, where people are skeptical about the claims of Jesus, the claims of early Christians, it's not uncommon for people to make observations like, well, what about uh, the science? What, what about uh, experimental evidential standards that we could look at and affirm whether Jesus is or was who he said he was? You know, the resurrection is merely a bunch of eyewitness accounts. We know historically how uh, shoddy eyewitness accounts are. They're not all that uh, well put together. They're rather unreliable. And, and matter of fact, this, this happened in a world that believed in mythological kinds of ideas like the gods and, and, and mythology. So why should we believe that this is not just a blown up mythological story by early Christians? And then, they, and then if you ask them, well, what standard or evidence would you like for, Jesus, for you to believe Jesus? It's always some standard or evidence that is outside of the realms or bounds of what Scripture talks about as being God-disclosed revelation. So here the soldiers are beating Jesus, and they're telling him, for us to believe that you're a prophet, you should tell us who hit you. Now that's a standard that nowhere in the text of the Old Testament or in the New does, does God say, one of the ways you can test whether or not this prophet who I send to you is the true prophet is if you blindfold him and beat him, and then he accurately tells you who it was that hit him. That's not a standard. But, but these soldiers seem to think that it could be a standard, and so they mock him in this way. Well, that's not altogether different from uh, a modern skeptic uh, going to the text of the Old Testament and the New Testament and saying, well, uh, we don't have uh, any, any other historians. Well, we do have some, but we don't have a vast majority of historians who affirm, let's say, the historical Jesus in all of the details that the disciples affirm. Uh, we don't have uh, video evidence that Jesus lived in the first century world. How convenient. Video evidence didn't exist in the first century world. We don't have uh, DNA evidence. We don't have uh, genealogical evidence. We have a couple of references, and if you exclude the New Testament, really only a couple of references to this historical person, Jesus. Conclusion, by our modern weights, measures, and standards, he isn't a reliable historical figure. Well, that's an unequal weight and measure from what the text of Scripture tells us. Back in the Old Testament, God told the Jewish people, here's how you'll know the prophet who I'm sending to you. Then Jesus comes, and as I started off our study tonight with, showed you all of the ways Luke, that's just Luke, not even John and Mark and Matthew and other New Testament writers, say, hey, by the way, Jesus is this prophet. He's fulfilling all these things as was expected from this Old Testament prophet to the Jewish people. And so it would be wrong for us today to impose our own standard or criteria on what Jesus must be like or must have done in order for us to believe him. The Bible gives us a criteria, it gives us a standard, and says here, here is all the evidence that Jesus meets this standard and criteria. Kind of like a take it or leave it. And that's still true today. We don't have the authority to go back to the text and say, well, Jesus should have done this, that, and the other thing, and if he would have done those things, I would have believed him. So, in Luke 22, uh, these, these short verses that we looked at tonight, Peter's denial and the, the beating of the soldiers, we see clearly that Jesus is the one to listen to. He is the one whom the Old Testament expects and the New Testament affirms. And so even us today, in our world, removed from this ancient world, must still listen to him. Because he's that once and for all prophet who God says to listen to. And so, all of Jesus' commands 
are not just opinions, which you can relegate into uh, opinion world uh, in your life. They are binding commands on our lives. Which means we don't get to just take some of what Jesus said and leave other parts behind. Uh, we don't get to uh, take what Jesus said with a grain of salt as good moral advice. Jesus makes all kinds of claims that are whole life demanding on a person. And if he's really this prophet, and I would, I would encourage you, if you're not sure of that, examine the evidence closely. If he really is this prophet, you have to listen. Uh, we have to listen to him in all that he says, all that he commands, and all that he is. And that's not just true for, uh, for those of you who are not sure about Christ. But Christians, that's also true for you. You have to listen to Jesus in all that he commands, in all that he says, which means not just mental assent to his moral statements, but also life obedience to his moral statements. Not just mental assent to what he says about himself theologically, but also life rendered in obedience and awe, such as a response of worship to him in what he says. We don't get to take the things that we like and spit out the parts that we don't like. We have to take Jesus for all that he says and listen to him in all that he commands. So that's true for both Christians and non-Christians, but especially for those of us who have familiarity with this book, we have a danger of tuning out the parts that we are uncomfortable with and unfamiliar to. And the whole thing of what Jesus commands is binding, all of it in its totality. So uh, with that, we should go now into worshiping that one true prophet who has once and for all come. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed the one who has the message of eternal life. Your words are a blessing. They are difficult. And Lord, they are freedom. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to see that what this world offers is not freedom, but, but bondage. What you offer, though, Lord, is life and life eternal, life and life abundant, freedom to live as we were created to live, worshiping the God who created us. Lord, we thank you for the immense privilege it has been to even read your revelation, to take a look back into time and see all that Christ has done. And we pray that you would seal and impress that upon our hearts today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.